Well, thank you so much for being here tonight. What a, what a great encouragement it is to uh, have you all here and to have the Hicksons here with us. I kept getting these text messages from him today, uh, something about a traffic jam on I-15. So we're, we're delayed, and I'm thinking, oh, no. He's cutting it close anyway. And then and there, there's another one. Well, we're, uh, we're another delay. So I'm thinking, oh, boy. But they arrived here in good order at uh, 4.30 this afternoon, and everything was fine. We first met, I, I first met Dr. Hickson uh, five years ago. It was in Duluth, Minnesota, and uh, he was speaking at the conference there in Duluth. And... Uh, when Matt and I came back from that conference, we were thinking about, okay, well, who could we have come out? And we both said, well, let's see if Dr. Hickson can come out. And he did a couple of, uh, three or four years ago. Yeah. And, and uh, we just had such a great time with him then. Uh, I've learned, I, I've learned <clears throat> some of his sense of humor. He sent me a, a text when I'm sitting out in the kitchen eating, he sent me a text and he said, in case you need help for my introduction, and here's what he sent, outstanding, superb, fantastic, best ever, excellent, class by himself, one of a kind. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> It is, it is a joy to have him. I, I enjoy his sense of humor, but I enjoy his passion for the gospel and communicating the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is such a, a burden that, that God has put on his heart and through his writing and through his teaching on, on the web, I, I've just really been encouraged and blessed and challenged and really convicted. Uh, so... Without further ado, I'll have him come and minister the word this evening. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. That text, by the way, was supposed to be just between me and you. I sure everything. Now they're going to, yeah, well, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, yeah, now they're going to think I'm not very humble. But in all honesty, I am the most humble man I know. So just, so I am really, I mean, this is like, I'm like a kid in a candy shop because we have, I'm, I'm like a kid, you know, going to see grandma and grandpa for the first time in a long time. And that's no reflection on Gary's age, by the way. Um, no, I just mean, we've been looking forward to this for so long. And um, it's just been, it's just been something that, you know, uh, when the, the standard was set when we were here uh, back in 20. Uh, 18. And ever since then, every conference we speak at, every church we speak at, it's, it's kind of like we'll drive away and we'll think, man, that was, that was awesome. And then either me or Wendy, one of us will say, but it was no Fresno, you know. <laughs> so, and so last year when it got canceled, it was just so disheartening. I mean, the whole year was tough, obviously, for, for everybody, for a host of reasons <clears throat> all across the world, really. But for Not By Works, it was, it was tough because we, uh, you know, all of our events were canceled and we, uh, we make our living through this ministry. And so uh, we use that time uh, wisely to try to work on some book projects and things like that. But God is faithful. And so this year we've kicked back up again. And I tell you, th this is the tail end of a three event trip over the last three weeks. And I was telling uh, Matt, you know, we started out in Tulsa two weekends ago. Then last week we were in Lubbock, Texas. And um, I know this is being streamed, and so hopefully no one from Tulsa or Lubbock is watching. But honestly, we just kind of phoned it in there. We, our eyes and our heart was on was on Fresno. We couldn't wait to get to Fresno and be here for this uh, <clears throat> for this time. And we've got a lot of uh, just some great stuff that I want to dialogue with and talk about. I know it'll challenge you. I'm sure it'll step on a few toes, um, especially the stuff we're going to do tonight and tomorrow night, getting ready for Sunday. Um, by the way, thanks for the pizza. That was great. And it was it was nice change. I know we're going to have a potluck tomorrow night, but having pizza tonight was a nice change. It reminded me of the story of the uh, uh, elementary school teacher who wanted to do a show and tell with her kids on, on religion. And so she told the kids, I want you to bring in something to kind of tell a little bit about your religion. So the first little boy gets up the next day and he says, my name's Benjamin and, you know, this is a star of David. 
And the next uh, little girl gets up and says, well, my name's Mary, and, and this is a crucifix. I'm, I'm Catholic. And the next uh, third kid gets up and says, well, my name's Jimmy, and I'm Baptist, and this is a casserole. So, uh, so, uh, so pizza was a nice change. It, it, it really was. Um, so thank you so much for letting us be here. We're here to serve. We're looking forward to the dialogue and the discussion. And, you know, I don't know what the schedule is when we're not having the actual conference, but I'd love to be available to, to dialogue. And if you want to grab me at the table and, and talk about um, stuff or ask questions, we're we're happy to, happy to do that as well. So um, the whole conference is about the gospel. And we want to start out uh, tonight by, and tomorrow night by talking about what the gospel is not. And so I think the theme for the, gospel, for the conference is the gospel unplugged. And, um, you know, as we, as we think about the gospel, everybody in this room could probably define the gospel in certain terms. It's pretty, pretty basic. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when I talk about the gospel uh, and what it is, no matter where I go, it's almost always met with a, a chorus of amens and, you know, yes, this is great and, you know, preach on or something like that, right? But when I start to uh, talk about what the gospel is not, inevitably that's where problems arise because uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, the devil's been blinding men's hearts to the gospel uh, since Calvary. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that. And, you know, there are no shortage of misunderstandings about the gospel, colloquial terms that we use to try to describe the gospel. And especially in the last hundred years or so, we've, we've kind of gotten into uh, a lot of terminology, uh, nomenclature that really is not helpful. And it, it actually impugns the purity and simplicity of the gospel. At uh, Not By Works, our, we've been around 22 years as a ministry, uh, and uh, our passion is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And those two first two words are really what this weekend is going to be about. We want to talk about getting the gospel clear, but also being accurate. Um, on uh, Sunday night, we're going to kind of close out the conference by giving you an example of how to share the gospel clearly and accurately, a simple uh, presentation. Um, but in order to kind of get from here to there, we, we do need to touch on some, some, uh, some issues. Um, so what is the gospel? You know, I read a book recently, a guy in, in my midweek Bible study um, a class that I teach when I'm home uh, gave me a book from the 1950s. I can't remember who wrote it, but we were talking about the gospel, and he thought I would get a kick out of this uh, book, and it was called Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that book, but uh, it, it really, I think, speaks to the issue at hand. What is grace, and, and, and what is the gospel, and what does it mean, right? So we want to we kind of just, you know, get rid of some myths and, and and get rid of some misunderstandings. So I want to talk about 10 uh, false understandings of the gospel, and we'll kind of go th as far as we can tonight, uh, time-wise, and then we'll do the second half uh, tomorrow night. And I'd like to also field some questions, because I know this might generate some questions, and I don't know about you, but I learn best by dialogue. And so if you have questions, jot them down. Hopefully we'll have five or ten minutes at the end of tonight. I can take some questions, um, but if not, certainly at some point during the conference, I want to make sure and carve out some time uh, for that. Uh, so ten false understandings uh, of the gospel. So these are several common expressions that are really contrary to the plain and simple gospel message of, uh, of God's Word. You know, if there's one thing the Bible's clear about, it's the gospel, right? It's the good news, and uh, it shouldn't be complicated. Uh, we've done a good job of complicating it, um, but it really is pretty simple, you know? It's that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and yet we find ourselves uh, using phrases that cloud the issue and our, our misunderstanding. So let's dive in. The first one that I want to talk about is the gospel is not a commitment. The gospel is not a commitment. Now, I was uh, raised in a Baptist upbringing, raised in a Christian family, but primarily Bible church and Baptist church background. And in Baptist churches, this is very common, not just Baptist churches, but particularly 
in Baptist churches, uh, where they talk about the salvation experience in terms of it being a commitment. And they even have commitment cards that you sign. And when having given the plan of salvation and asking for a response, often uh, churches will call on people, you know, by saying something like, if you'd like to make a commitment, you know, please join me at the altar or something like that. Or we'll say things like when sharing our testimony. Uh, if you wanted to ask someone their testimony, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, when did you commit your life to Christ? Or how old were you when you first committed your life to Christ? Now, what's the problem with that language? Well, first of all, it's never used in Scripture. Okay? That, that concept is never mentioned in Scripture as it relates to getting saved. But secondly, a commitment by its nature implies that we're doing something for the Lord, right? When you commit to something, you know, you commit to mow the lawn by Saturday, or you commit to take out the trash, or you commit to be at work by 8 o'clock, you're, you're doing something. You're making a commitment. But no amount of commitment on our part, uh, no matter how earnest and genuine and heartfelt, can overcome the penalty of sin. See, Jesus paid it all. That's the testimony of Scripture. It's not what we do for Christ. It's what He's done for us. Um, if we could earn heaven on the strength of our commitment, then, you know, why did Christ have to go to the cross, right? If it's all about being committed. Not only that, but it, it's inherently subjective. How do I know if I'm committed enough? Maybe you're more committed than me. And, you know, you really, really committed. I just really committed. So who's saved? What if a person didn't really, really commit or really commit, but just committed their life? Oh, man, then, then they're way back in the line, right? Uh, I taught full time for 12 years at a college and a seminary. And uh, it was during that time in academia that we started Not By Works uh, Ministries. And uh, for a period of time, a number of the students that I had, they were adult learners, and many of them were pastors. And these were guys in their 40s or sometimes older that were coming back to school to finish their undergraduate so they could go back to seminary. But they were already serving the Lord in ministry. And so Monday classes were always kind of exciting because a lot of these guys would come in and they would want to talk about uh, their services from the previous day and the activities that went on at their church. And inevitably, on a Monday class, at, at a Monday class, one of the guys would say something like, oh, um, Prof, you would, have, you would have loved our service yesterday. We had five people commit their lives to Christ. And I would always say the same thing. Man, that's fantastic. Did any of them get saved? Because we don't get saved by committing our life or our heart or our all to Christ. As we're going to see a lot through this uh, weekend, one of the keys to, to clarifying these issues is understanding the distinction between discipleship and salvation, between sanctification, the spiritual growth process, and justification, that moment when faith meets the gospel and we become born again. So the gospel is not a commitment. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, if salvation was based upon a commitment, then I could boast that my commitment was maybe stronger than yours, or I, I would be more saved than you or more spiritual than you because I'm more committed than you. It's all about me. Look at me. Look what I've done. Commitment is something that we need to keep a New Year's resolution, but it's not something that gets us uh, saved. The gospel is not about being committed. It's about recognizing that we are filthy, dirty, rotten sinners in need of a Savior. We can never be good enough, and Jesus paid it all. The Bible says in Titus 3.5, which is the theme verse for our ministry, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Not by works, not by works. And by the way, that phrase in Greek in Ephesians 2 and in Titus 3, both of these, even though they're translated differently, it's the same phrase in Greek. Not by works, not of works could be translated either way. It's the same exact phrase in Greek. In Romans 3, Paul says, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, if it's free, then it doesn't require a commitment. I mean, how many times have you gotten one of those phone calls or maybe a flyer in the mail that offers something free, but you read the fine print and you realize you've got to commit for 24 months, right? Or you've got to commit for, you know, so long. You've got to sign some kind of commitment. Well, that's not free. Uh, I remember um, for a while, this was several years ago, at our Not By Works resource tables at different conferences that we do, we had a sign up that related to our DVDs, our single DVDs. And it said uh, something like, buy four, get one free. Well, a guy came up to my table, very astute young man one time, and he said, uh, I'm here for my free DVD. And I said, okay, which four would you like to buy? Oh, he said, you mean I have to buy something? And I said, yeah, and my brain is already tracking with him. And he goes, well, it doesn't sound like it's free then, right? So now you'll notice we've changed our signage, and it says, buy four, get six, you know, right? Or four for the price of six, you know, because I want to be accurate, right? Free means free. And, you know, I like, to, I like to really harp on that because we have become conditioned in, especially in Western evangelical Christianity, uh, to be uncomfortable with the term free. And so because I know most Christians are uncomfortable with that when it comes to talking about salvation, I just dive right in with both feet and hit it really hard. So I want to make sure you understand that our salvation is absolutely 100% free with a capital F. Free means it cost us absolutely nothing. Now, as we shall see, and as you already know, of course, it cost God his own son, and it cost God's son his life and his shed well, most blood. Christians are a penalty had to be paid, and there's a steep penalty to be paid for sin. That when it comes but to by its very nature, salvation is being right rescued really from hard. the penalty of so sin. So I want to make sure you understand we that can't our salvation he paid a debt absolute. he didn't know because we owed a debt we could never pay. And if we had to bring something to the table... If we had to contribute something to our salvation, it's no longer free. But salvation is absolutely free. Free means no strings attached. So if I were to, let me see if I can find a gift here. If I were to offer this gift, this pencil, to Matt, and I'll stay up here and we'll just do this long distance because we're streaming it and I don't want to walk out of the picture, but... If I were to offer this nice, shiny, beautiful gift to Matt, and just as he was about to take it, pretend like you're going to take it. So you reach out. Okay, just as he was, I pull it back and said, now, wait a minute. Here's what you, here, I just want to make sure you know what you're getting into. Here's the, here's your part of the equation. Here's what I expect from you. Instantly, the entire equation changes, doesn't it? It's no longer a gift. It's a contract. It's a quid pro quo, right? A gift by its very nature is free, completely free. If it's not free, it's not a gift. If it's not a gift, it's not free. <laughs> See? In fact, uh, a lot of people have pointed out, and they are correct, that this is a bit redundant. And I, I get into this in a, a video we just did. You can see it on our uh, website uh, called What is Free Grace? Uh, where people will say it's redundant to say free grace. And it is, because grace, by definition, means free gift. Okay, uh, But sometimes God's Word, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will be repetitious for emphasis, and will insert words to just really drive the point home. He could have just said being justified by His grace, and, and nothing more need be said. Grace is free. That's the nature of grace. It's an undeserved gift, right? Uh, but he added freely here to make sure uh, to drive the point home. We, we see this often in Scripture. We see it, for example, in uh, John 10, 28, uh, this example of repetition, where Jesus uses a double negative, that if you translated it with wooden literalness, it would say... Uh, I give you eternal, I give them, the sheep, eternal life, and they shall know, never perish, would be a literal translation. Um, now, he didn't need to insert that no in there, but it's a way of just really emphasizing um, 
we have a colleague in uh, ministry that translates this, you shall never perish forever. <laughs> you know, just again, to, to, to drive home the point. Same thing is happening here. We're justified freely by His grace. We see one of the, the last uh, pleas or invitation in God's Word is in Revelation 22. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, if in order to get the water of life, I've got to commit something, myself, my all, my life, my behavior, my willingness to follow, my all of these things, then it's no longer free. Suddenly it becomes a Again, a quid pro quo. So if the gospel were about my commitment to Christ, and it's not, but if it were, then it begs the question, how committed do I have to be? How much is enough? A commitment-based gospel destroys assurance. It's impossible to be sure of your salvation if you believe that your salvation was predicated upon your commitment. Uh, how can I ever be sure of my eternal destiny if that's what it took to get it? There's no possibility for assurance. Commitment by its nature is subjective. Faith is not. You know what you believe. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. Faith is not a difficult concept to understand. In fact, it's quite simple. So simple a child can understand it. It's the reason Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, right? Faith just means confidence or assurance. You look it up in any lexicon, even ancient non-biblical Greek language lexicons, same thing, confidence or assurance. When you believe something, it means you're confident in it. So uh, faith, when it meets the gospel, results in eternal life every time, and you know what you believe. In fact, with every... Uh, I don't want to get too heady here, but just walk with me through this. With any proposition I can give you, any statement, any propositional truth, ultimately there are really only two options. You either believe it or you don't. Now you might say, well, I don't know. I, I'm, I haven't made up my mind yet. Well, by definition, that's unbelief, right? So at any moment you've either believed something, maybe you aren't sure, you're thinking through it, you're, you know, but that's unbelief until it becomes belief. So with any proposition, you either believe something or you don't believe it, right? And you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a nominological fallacy to think that you cannot know whether you've believed something or not. And yet we, as we're going to see through this weekend, we see this false teaching come up a lot where people will say to someone 20 years later, well, you obviously didn't believe the gospel because look at your life. <laughs> And, and if they're living in a sin, they conclude that they didn't have faith. Well, they, they weren't there. And you get people questioning their own faith. Did I really believe the gospel? Well, maybe I didn't. But this, this kind of false gospel is very uh, prevalent. But you know, the idea that the gospel requires some kind of commitment uh, absolutely destroys any possibility for assurance. Now, one of the uh, principles that we're going to come back to again and again and again over the next uh, couple of days is the distinction between salvation and discipleship. Because this notion that somehow in order for me to have eternal life, I've got to commit something to God or to the Lord stems from a misunderstanding, a confusion between salvation and discipleship, or what we might call between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Now, I've kind of zeroed in on, on these two, but let me step back and kind of put these two columns in a broader perspective. So in the Bible, salvation is spoken of as having three tenses, past, present, and future. So we are saved in the past at a one-time moment in time, the minute faith meets the gospel, from the penalty of sin once for all. That's called justification, right? Uh, that, that moment that we are born again, we are, uh, you know, 33 things happen instantly, spiritually speaking, the moment we trust Christ. Lewis Berry Chafer lists those in his theology. Things like regeneration, justification, redemption, reconciliation, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, name written in the Lamb's book of life, all of those things, right? Rescued from the penalty of sin. So that's salvation in the past. It happens the moment you've trusted Christ. And hopefully everyone here tonight has place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. If you have, you're saved. You've been justified, and it's free. 
Romans 3.24, justified freely by grace. Salvation in the present is, uh, is, is what we call sanctification. That term sanctification is used in Scripture predominantly of the progressive spiritual growth process, spiritual maturity process of the believer. Uh, there are a few passages where sanctification is used as a synonym for justification, but for the most part, when we use the term theologically, we're going along with the majority of its usages, which just means progressive sanctification, spiritual growth process. That's salvation in the present. If salvation in the past saves us from sin's penalty, salvation in the present saves us from sin's power. As we walk by faith, as we yield to the Holy Spirit, as we reckon ourselves dead to sin, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about uh, in this series. So that's sanctification. But there's a third column, just to close the loop on this uh, past, present, and future, and that's glorification. Someday we will be saved once for all for the very presence of sin. When this mortal puts on immortality, this corruption puts on this corruptible puts on incorruption, and we see the Lord. Uh, so we, are, we have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We are being saved as we walk by faith from the power of sin. Someday when we leave this earth, we will be saved once for all from the very presence of sin. That's glorification. But as it relates to the gospel, this is where people get in trouble. By blurring the distinction between justification and sanctification, between our position in Christ and our practical outworking of who we are in Christ, our behavior. Okay, so again, justification rescues us from sin's penalty. Uh, sanctification rescues us from sin's power. Justification occurs at a one-time moment in time when we believe the gospel. Practical righteousness, sanctification occurs at various points in time as we yield to the Holy Spirit, right? Both of them occur by faith. We're saved by faith and we live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. So the problem is, according to Scripture, for every believer... Our practice in life, so this is salvation, this is discipleship, they're not the same thing. Let's make sure we get that settled. That's the whole point of this chart. But our practice in life should reflect our position in Christ. That's the normal, natural thing. If you're a believer and you're living in sin, that's not healthy. That's not the new man producing that. That's the old man. And, you know, Paul is... Very clear that we should put on the new man. I mean, we have put on the new man, therefore we should live like the new man, right? You know, since we're alive spiritually, Galatians 5, 26, we should live uh, in the Spirit. We should walk in the Spirit. So it's very possible for a believer who positionally, once for all, is in Christ. We have perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which is what opens the doors of heaven. But our life doesn't always reflect that, does it? Because as we cater to the flesh, sometimes the flesh rears its ugly head and, and manifests itself in our behavior. So unfortunately, we have become conditioned to look at people's behavior and think immediately of this you know, left-hand column, positional righteousness. Look at their behavior. They can't possibly be saved. Well, the problem with that is there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's catering or she's catering to the flesh. <laughs> See, the, the old man is an ugly factor. When we get saved, we don't, the old nature doesn't get eradicated. If it did, we would all be perfect, right? So we still sin. And there are consequences for that sin. God's discipline. Uh, loss of blessing, temporal, temporal discipline, temporal consequences in life, setting a bad example for others, loss of rewards at the Bema. There's all kinds of consequences for sin. And I want to make sure I'm on record early on this weekend, I am against sin, right? So sin, bad, don't do it. And if you're sinning, you should repent of it. It's not healthy. It's not good. But our behavior does not play any role in whether or not we're going to heaven because our salvation is by grace through faith and it's absolutely 100% free. Absolutely 100% free. So I remember talking to someone one time who about these various issues and they were just having such a hard time understanding how it could be completely free. And they made the comment, well, don't you have to know what you're getting into? Like, don't you have to know what you're committing to? And they were again, sort of 
being conditioned by this concept of, of a commitment-based gospel. And I said, no, you don't have to know what you're getting into. You have to know what you're getting out of. <laughs> you have to know you're a sinner. You have to know that your sin is an offense to a holy God, and the penalty for that sin is an eternity in a place of torment called hell. And Christ died on the cross for your sin personally. He would have done it if you'd have been the only one. So you wouldn't have to pay that penalty. And He offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. Now, He doesn't force it on you. I mean, if He forced it on you, that wouldn't be love. He, but, but it's a gift, you know, you know if, if I, going back to this wonderful pencil, if I forced it on Matt, and he said, no, no thanks, I don't want it. I said, no, you have to take it. And I start, you know, beating him over the head with it and sticking it in his pocket. That's not really a gift, right? That's a compulsion. And so a gift, by its nature, has to be freely offered, freely offered, and freely received. And so uh, my newest book and that I just finished last year during the pandemic when we couldn't travel, uh, and I'll talk more about this at the end of the night tonight, but is uh, called Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, and the one reason no one ever has to. And so I, I, it's always amazed me in, in 32 years of ministry why people won't accept the free gift of eternal life. It's free, and it's the most important thing you could ever have, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So ultimately, as I explained in the book, uh, the, the one reason everybody goes to hell is, they've, is unbelief. They've never believed the gospel. Jesus said, if you do not believe in me, you'll die in your sins. But why don't they believe the gospel? So I have 10 chapters where you know, I kind of talk about certain things that might keep someone from you know, believing the gospel. And one of those is, it's hard for us to imagine that we can get something as valuable as eternal life for free. We just feel like we've got to bring something to the game. We've got to bring something to the table. It's as if we think we're sitting down at a bargaining table and God says, okay, I've got eternal life. What have you got? And we say, well, I've got, you know, my all, my life. I'll stop doing this. I promise to do this. I'll pledge to do that. I'll never do this. I'll try hard to do this. I'll really be committed. I'll give you this pencil. <laughs> and God finally says, you got a deal, right? That's not the way it works. Salvation is not a bilateral contract, it's a unilateral gift, paid for by the blood of Christ, paid in full, by the way. And so if anybody doesn't receive the free gift and ends up in hell, they have nobody to blame but themselves. You know, nobody can shake their fist at God and say, why do you send people to hell? And God's saying, send people to hell? Let's review what happened here. First of all, I warned you to begin with, don't eat the apple, the proverbial apple. Uh, because I loved you so much, I don't want you to die. I, I said, don't eat it, you'll die. And what did you do? You walked right over and ate, ate the apple. And then I could have stopped right there and said, okay, it's done. You're in hell and, and I'm God and that's what I said would happen. But I took the extra step to provide a remedy for the predicament you got yourselves into, which was to pay the penalty on your behalf with the blood of my own son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then offer it freely to anyone who will accept it by faith. So how is that sending someone to hell? That's not sending anybody to hell. That's giving you every opportunity. And of course, you read through Romans and you find out that through general revelation, everybody knows there's a God. And all you have to do is respond to that general revelation. God will send special revelation. And when you hear the gospel, the Spirit of God convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, if you'll simply respond in faith, just like that. That penalty goes away and you're saved. So uh, the gospel is not a commitment. And uh, we confuse, confuse these two uh, columns at our own peril. It really messes up the whole concept of salvation. Because when our practice in life does not reflect our position in Christ, people are prone to think, well, am I really saved? You know, and since there's a whole false teaching out there that tells you it's how you believe that saves you, not what you believe. You have to believe the right way. You've got to bring the right stuff to the table. Uh, then you begin to think, well, did I really believe the right way? Maybe I, I mean, I thought I believed the gospel, but maybe I didn't. And so you, you have this endless cycle of guilt and doubt and wondering, and, and it, it, it just produces just uh, fear and all kinds of negative things. So we need to understand that Salvation and discipleship are not the same thing, um, and, uh, and a lot of the passages that people use to promote a commitment-based gospel 
come from the gospel teaching where Jesus is talking about the high cost of discipleship for believers, not as a call to how to have eternal life to begin with. He's already talking to uh, believers there. So uh, there are three kinds of disciples in Scripture, and this is taken from uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, who was one of my professors at uh, Dallas Seminary. He's with the Lord now. Uh, But a lot of times people suggest that there's no distinction between discipleship and salvation, and that it's the same thing, that if if you're really saved, you're a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you're never saved. And I'm just wanting to show you that that's not biblical. We've already given you the premise, salvation is not the same thing as discipleship. Um, But now now let me give you some examples. So first of all, in Scripture we see curious disciples, which were unsaved people, who simply followed Christ out of curiosity. But they never believed in Him. Judas is an example. He's called a disciple. There were many crowds, John 6 talks about them, that, that followed Christ but never believed in Him. See, disciple just means follower, right? And then there's the convinced, those who not only followed him, but actually, you know, believed in him. But they weren't always committed. Peter was obviously a believer, but clearly he was not always following Christ. I don't know how you can say you're following Christ when you deny him three times and curse him. That's kind of like the textbook picture of the opposite of following Christ, right? And Peter frequently does that. You see that in Matthew 16 in that famous passage where Jesus says, Get thee behind me, Satan, talking to Peter, because Peter frequently said, no, Lord, you know, kind of an oxymoron when you put those two words together. And Peter used that phrase a lot. No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. No, Lord. And, and, and the Lord rebuked him. So there were times when Peter was not following the Lord, but he was a believer. So he was convinced, but he was not always committed. The goal of every believer should be to believe the gospel and be committed, to be saved and committed. So commitment is very much a part of the biblical teaching, but it's for believers. Every day we ought to wake up and say, Lord, I want to be more committed to you than ever. Lord, how can I commit my life to you more today? How can I serve you more faithfully? How can I you know, represent the gospel to other people? What can I do today to be a light in this perverse generation, as Paul calls it? So commitment has its place, but it's not how somebody gets saved. So on a related note, the second false gospel that I want to talk about is, and I've touched on it, is the gospel is not a contract. You know, a lot of people have the mistaken notion that the gospel involves this bilateral arrangement, this quid pro quo that I've talked about, that somehow we've got to do our part and you've got, you know, God will then do his part. This is what, you know, Arminian theology teaches unashamedly, is that in order for you to go to heaven, you've got to be good. And if you stop being good, you can lose that eternal salvation, which, of course, if you can lose it, it's not eternal to begin with, but that's what they say, right? You, you might be going to heaven at one point, but because of your behavior, you broke the contract, and as, since you broke the contract, the contract is null and void. God no longer has to keep his end of the deal, right? So all bets are off, right? But the gospel is not a contract. You know, many popular evangelical teachers, authors, radio hosts, preachers, describe the gospel in terms that make it sound very much like a contract. So here's John MacArthur, for example. Salvation for sinners cost God His own Son. It cost God's Son His own life. And guess what? It'll cost you the same thing. Salvation, he goes on to say, comes from a life lived in obedience and service to Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. It's the fruit of actions, not intentions. Now, if I'm having to bring to the table the same thing that God and Jesus bring to the table, how is that not a bilateral contract. I mean, there's no wiggle room here. None. And these kind of statements, which I I dealt with extensively in several of my uh, books, Freely by His Grace, Getting the Gospel Wrong, are pervasive in the writings of Reformed theologians like MacArthur. But I bring this one up because it's, it's the most egregious. In fact, this was so troubling. This is from his book, Hard to Believe page 93, 
that in the second editions and following, they took this quote out. You're only going to find it in the first edition, which I bought when it first came out, to review. Uh, because even MacArthur had to recognize, you know what, that sounds a little harsh. <laughs> Uh, because people went all up in arms. How can you say that you've got to contribute the same thing that Jesus did? I thought Jesus paid it all. You know, we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But, I mean, this is basically cost God, you know, uh, his son. It cost his son his, you know, life. And it's going to cost you the same thing. Because, again... From MacArthur's perspective, salvation is from a life lived in obedience. It's from a commitment. It's from doing your part of the bargain. In fact, that's the whole premise of his book, Hard to Believe. You know, people that are, you know, come from that perspective about the gospel really don't like it when we talk about the gospel being free. Have I mentioned the gospel's free? <laughs> Completely, absolutely, 100% free. Um, you know, whosoever will let them come drink of the water of life freely. They don't like that because it shouldn't be that easy to believe. So he wrote a whole book that's saying, you know, you can't just believe the gospel. You've got to believe and forsake all your sin, his words. You've got to believe and commit in allegiance to Christ, his words. You've got to pledge your life to Christ, his word, and on and on and on. In fact, one colleague uh, another Reformed scholar once put it this way, James Montgomery Boyce. He said, when it comes to that moment of how you get saved, we ought to treat it like a, a, a bride and groom at the altar. And here's a suggested uh, covenant that you should say at, to the Lord. I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior and Lord, and I do hereby promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful disciple. And if you don't keep your end of the bargain... You didn't really mean business with God at that moment, so it proves you were never saved. So here's the thing that's sometimes hard to understand, the distinction between Arminian, what we call in theology, Arminianism and Calvinism. See, Arminians come right out up front and say, you've got to do good works to be saved, period. Calvinism says, you've got to do good works or you never were saved. So it's a subtle difference, but in either case, the good works become the determinative factor of whether or not you're going to heaven. And, uh, and so it all comes back to that moment. And that's why I'm saying they'll say, well, you never really believed, right? Or uh, John R.W. Stott, famous Reformed theologian with the Lord now. At its simplest, Christ called, by the way, in the context here, he's talking about how to get saved, how to have eternal life, was for personal allegiance. You see that phrase a lot. Um, you can search for it in MacArthur, Sproul, Piper, uh, Dever, all those guys, and they, they make the, the meaning of faith about personal allegiance. It's not simply trusting Christ to give you something. It's trusting Christ to give you something if you are personally allegiant to Him, pledging your life to Him. Uh, he invited them to learn from, obey His words, and identify themselves with His cause. So if you want to study this more in depth... And I think a lot of you have seen this, uh, if I recall from last time. We have a uh, three-video set called What is Calvinism and Is It Biblical? where I go through the five points of Calvinism, quote the Calvinist scholars in their own words. It's very ironic. I mean, I'm, I'm, MacArthur's a great guy. I'm not personally attacking him or calling him fat or ugly or picking on his mother. I'm just telling you I disagree with him, okay? The guy is a nice guy, but he's wrong when it comes to how you get saved. It doesn't cost you the same thing that it cost Jesus cost you nothing. If it cost you, if it didn't cost you nothing, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. It's not 99% Christ and 1% JB. I mean, why would Christ have to die if I could somehow contribute enough to, to make it work? So anyway, that's uh, just something that if you're interested. So we see several uh, examples in scripture of people who had this mindset. For example, the rich young ruler said, what good things shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You know, what's my part in the deal? What do I have to bring to the table? And, uh, you know, you remember the story. Jesus immediately honed right in on the fact that you've got to be perfect. Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 5, 48. You want to get into heaven, you've got to be perfect. How do you get perfect? By faith. You're declared perfect perfectly righteous in Christ, positionally in Christ. So uh, he honed right in on this man who certainly knew the law, and he said, oh, well, you, you want to have eternal? You've got to keep the commandments. 
And of course, the rich young ruler responded with, oh, well, I've done, I've kept them all from my youth. And Jesus said, oh, really? Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, oh, really? Uh, what about the laws about benevolence and, and helping the poor? All over the Old Testament, Leviticus and other Old Testament laws. Why don't you sell some goods and go give it, give it to the, these people that need it? And the Bible says he went away sad. Uh, we don't really know the full thing that was in his mind, but you can't help but wonder if in that moment he became convicted of the fact that he hadn't kept all the commandments, that he wasn't perfect, that he, that he lacked what he needed to go to heaven. Because, see, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, they all thought that they were going to be first in line in the kingdom. And Jesus, right out of the chute, his first major sermon recorded in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5 through 7, made it clear that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get in. And just to make sure that nobody misunderstood what he was saying there, because perhaps there were some listening on the hillside that day that thought, wow, I've got to be more righteous than them? I mean, they, they didn't like the way the Pharisees and, and, and scribes lorded it over them, and there was certainly some class issues there. But, but nevertheless, the, that class of people represented the ones who had dotted all of their I's and crossed all of their T's and had it all together. And even the common folk understood, hey, that's the epitome of righteousness, and that's what it's going to take to get in. And so when he says, you know, your righteousness must exceed that, then undoubtedly there were probably some who thought, wow, okay, I mean, I'm trying hard enough as I can, but if I got to be better than them, I'll just have to pull myself up by my bootstraps and try even harder, and, and, which of course was not Jesus' point. And he goes on in verse 48 of chapter 5 to make it abundantly clear when he says, in fact, unless you're perfect like the Heavenly Father is perfect, you're never going to get in. And then he goes on systematically to, to pick apart the righteousness, the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by saying, you know, you have heard that it was said, you know, don't uh, commit adultery. But I ask you, have you lusted? You're guilty. You've heard that it was said, don't murder, but have you ever hated? You're in trouble. In other words, it's not what you do that matters. It's what's in your heart. It's faith righteousness, not fake righteousness or self-righteousness, right? And it's really fascinating. You come to the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, and of course, Jesus has that famous passage, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? But I'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Because it's not about what you do. You know, it's not about how many good works you can muster up. It's about have you trusted in me? And then right out of the Sermon on the Mount, the next thing Matthew records under the inspiration of the Spirit, is the encounter in chapter 8. And by the way, at the end of chapter 7, Matthew tells us that it was really troubling uh, what to, to the people what Jesus had said. It really rocked their world, right? Because their whole world was a legalistic set of do's and don'ts and checklists. And, and they thought as long as they can check everything off their list, they're going to be good. And Jesus blew that away. He said, none of that's good enough. You have to know me. So then in chapter 8, the first thing we read is his encounter with the centurion, uh, who's, uh, was it a servant or a son? Anyway, I think it was a servant, was sick. And Jesus heals him, and the centurion expresses great faith, and Jesus then commends this Gentile centurion by saying, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Talk about a slap in the face. He just sort of uh, indicted the pillars of the Jewish first century Jewish community for their fake righteousness, because though they outwardly looked the part, inwardly they were far from him. And then he turns around and, of all things, commends a dirty, rotten, filthy Gentile, right? And then he goes on to say, in fact, I tell you, they will come from the east and the west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. In other words, these Gentiles are going to get there because only those who had faith. It's, not, it's no accident that he mentions Abraham because, of course, Abraham, how did he get justified? By faith, Genesis 15, 6. So Jesus' whole point 
is to illustrate and to teach, as he did throughout his ministry, that salvation comes by faith, by faith, by faith. So uh, the gospel is not a, a contract. Um, it, because as James says, if we could keep the whole law but stumble in one point, we're guilty of all, right? It's not possible to write up a contract with God which we would ever be able to keep. Not possible. That's why we must receive it as a unilateral free gift. Uh, and that's what it is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A contract involves a quid pro quo. A gift does not. A gift, by definition, comes with no strings attached. Um, there are only two responses to a gift. You can either receive it or reject it, right? Uh, no signing on the dotted line. No handshake. No quid pro quo. It's a gift. Uh, I can remember when our kids were much younger, our, little, our oldest were just little kids, they uh, gave them a, a gift. I forget what it was, a dollar, a couple dollars or something. And I said, here, this is a gift. You can, I'll take you to the dollar store. You can spend it on whatever you want. And, of course, as a kid, boy, you're just thrilled to death. And so I took them to the dollar store, and they kept picking out uh, uh, junk, which is to say they picked up anything from any shelf in any dollar store. But anyway, and bringing it back, and here, I picked this, Daddy. And I said, no, no, don't get that. It's going to break. It's, you know, you'll not even get out of the store without it. You pick something different. And I, that happened two or three times. And finally, one of the kids, I think it was our oldest, said, but Daddy, you said we could get anything we want. And I was convicted. I mean, I said it was a gift. And then I'm trying to control how they use it. So they bought junk, and we broke it in the parking lot, and it was an exciting day, you know? I mean, what, that's what you do. Um, so the way we receive the gift when it comes to salvation is by faith. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of men, the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And grammatically, this is an example of apposition, not opposition, apposition. The second phrase is an apposition of the first. Received is just the means by which we, be, you know, believe is just the means by which we receive it. So, you know, again, if Matt were to take this gift, he would most likely reach out his hands and take it, and now it's his, and he has possession of it physically in the temporal, physical world. That's how gifts are exchanged, right? I mean, I know it's, it's a little different nowadays with technology and stuff. You can send an Amazon gift card, and the way it's received is by clicking a button, and it you know, comes and it adds to your Amazon account. But you see my point. In the physical realm, it's a matter of taking possession of something, usually by your hands. If I give you a birthday present, you know, I hand it to you, you take it, it's yours, it's, it's done. I've offered a gift, you've received it. Spiritually speaking, the, the hands by which we receive the gift... Our faith. Faith. I know that's hard to conceptualize because we're, we understand a physical gift and we understand how to receive that gift physically. But the Bible makes it clear that faith is the means by which we receive the gift. And uh, 160 times we're told, if you believe in me, you'll be saved. John 6, 47 comes to mind. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. That's how you get it. Uh, no one can believe for you. I can't believe for you. I can't pray you into heaven. I, mean, I can pray for your salvation. I can pray for the Spirit of God to convict you and for you to respond in faith to the gospel. And we should pray for others. But I can't save you. I can't receive the gift for you. And neither can God force you to, to do it. See, some people confuse the means of receiving the gift with the gift. And they try to suggest that faith is a gift, which the Bible does not teach. But even if, you know, even if you didn't have the scriptural evidence, it's illogical. You don't use a gift to receive a gift. That's, that's, that's a category confusion. There's a gift, and there's a means of receiving the gift. If you take a gift to receive the gift, then where do you get the gift to get the gift to receive the gift? And it becomes this endless tautology, and it just doesn't make any sense, right? 
Like if I offer Matt a gift and he says, great, as soon as you give me a gift, I'll take it. And I, I'm giving you a gift, Matt. No, no, I need a gift to be able to take the gift. Well, this is the only gift I have. Take it or leave it. You know, that, so it just it creates this craziness. But that, again, is based on a Calvinistic teaching that you don't have a choice in the matter. You don't get to re choose to receive or reject Christ. It's done for you. That faith in the Calvinist scheme is an involuntary response to regeneration, not the uh, instrumental cause of regeneration. So let me do one more because it segues out of this, and then we'll stop for tonight and uh, see if you have any questions. The third thing the gospel is not, it's not giving something to the Lord. Again, this is the idea here uh, is that people have turned the gospel, as Charles Ryrie has said, 180 degrees in the wrong direction. He told me that one time at a conference where I had him come in and speak, and uh, I thought it was a great quote. Uh, people, when you say, you know, I'm going to give my life to the Lord, or I'm going to give my heart to the Lord, or I'm going to give my all to the Lord, they've they've turned the equation on its head. There's one giver and one receiver, and you can't confuse the two. See, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He's the giver. We're the receiver. As many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the sons of men, so sons of God. So the problem is, I think, a lot of people come to the proverbial altar load it up, because this is the way they've been taught through false gospels, often unwittingly. I mean, I'm not impugning the motives of people. I think a lot of times people preach a false gospel, and they really mean well. They love the Lord. They want people to come to faith. They, they care about people's souls, but they're just using unbiblical language. And so they'll say, you know, something like, you know, do you recognize you're a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. Do you understand the penalty of that sin is eternal separation from God in a literal place of torment called hell? Yes. And I don't want to go there. I want to be saved. Okay, great. Here's what you do. Give your life to the Lord. So people get loaded up and they bring everything they can think of to the altar. And okay, Lord, here you go. And the Lord's like, got eternal life and forgiveness. And he's trying to find a place to hand it to you, but there's no room in your arms. Right? Because you've, you've got them loaded up trying to give him something. And he's like, just get rid of all that stuff and receive the gift, right? Um, I love this uh, old uh, song uh, by Augustus Toplady that got it right. Uh, verse 3 says it all. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right? So a lot of people are missing out on receiving the free gift of eternal life because they're too busy trying to give something to the Lord. And the gospel is not uh, giving something to the Lord. It's receiving something from the Lord. Amen? Amen? All right, so I've probably met my quota for stepping on toes tonight already. So we will, uh, we will stop for tonight, but I do want to open it up for just maybe five minutes of questions. If there's something that's burning on your heart or your mind or some comment or question, uh, let's uh, fire away and then we'll wrap up. Yes, sir. Yeah. So the question is about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which Calvinists teach that, you know, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. They think the pronoun that, the antecedent of it is faith, impossible. Grammatically in Greek, it's impossible because the pronoun has to agree with its antecedent in gender and number, and they don't. So the that there refers to our salvation. It's the only thing it can refer to uh, grammatically. And secondly, if you just compare Scripture with Scripture, clearly... You know, the, the whole point that Paul is making there and that he makes throughout Romans and throughout all these other cross-references is that salvation is not of ourselves, right? It's not by works. It's not something we do. It's a free gift. So the that, the pronoun that there refers to salvation, not to faith. And, and that's really the only verse uh, that if you know they hang their hat on you, you you do away with that and the whole system kind of crumbles. So good question. Yes, sir. In your book, uh, heading the gospel wrong, uh, you provided us a definition of saved faith. Within that definition, you provided also for some various uh, 
Okay, so let me repeat the question while I can still remember most of it, just for the people that are watching or that might watch the video later. So the question is about the definition of saving faith, and, and you said that I have certain things included in that, such as knowledge, correct, and then you said faith and belief. I, I, I don't define faith as faith or belief. That's that's what I'm defining. So I'm not sure that that's what you meant. Um, so the, uh, let me be clear that saving faith, as, as I define it and as the Bible teaches it, is when faith meets the gospel. When faith meets the right object, the result is eternal life every time. So I, in the book, I define faith, meaning faith in anything. What is faith? What, is, what does the word mean? Which means confidence or assurance in some stated or implied truth. That's what the lexical definition of it is. But words have to be defined in context. And so when we talk about saving faith, what I mean is what, how, what causes faith to give you eternal life? Well, it's when you believe the right thing. So people can and do believe many things in life. Muslims believe the five pillars of the Islamic faith will get them to paradise. That's faith. <laughs> a child believes in Santa Claus. That's faith. But Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. So there's one thing the Bible's clear on. It's precisely what we must believe to have eternal life. And so, uh, and I spend the first two chapters in getting the gospel wrong, dealing with that exegetically and showing you the definition of the gospel. Christ died. You can state the gospel in 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. When you believe that, you're saved. Uh, so, again, people can and do believe many things in life. It's not how you believe that saves you. It's what you believe. So a Muslim's belief in the five pillars of the Islamic faith is just as much faith as our belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again. Our faith will get you to heaven. Their faith won't. <laughs> so faith is faith. Saving faith is faith in the right object. And there's nothing subjective about that at all. You know what you believe. If you can't know what you believe, then, then all of us are kind of trapped in this complete realm of lunacy and psychosis where we don't, but you know what you believe. And so if I say, do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead and is the only one who can save you? You're going to either say yes, no, or I don't know, which is de facto uh, no. So, but you're not going to say, I don't know if I do or not. I mean, I think I do. I might not. I How will I know? Well, you'll know because you know what you believe, right? It's not, it's, it's not possible to not know what you believe, short of, obviously, there could be a mental issue or a in brain injury. Obviously, we're setting those aside. In a normal circumstance, you can know what you believe. You know, Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So we can know. 1 John 5.13 says, uh, all right, those of you who believe in me, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we can know what we believe. And the Bible is very clear about what precisely we must believe in order to have eternal life. And it's that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So uh, that's what I get into in the book is what, is what does it mean to believe anything? It's just confidence and assurance. Uh, you can't believe something and doubt it at the same time, the same object, right? Faith and doubt are mutually exclusive. I can believe one thing and doubt another. We do that all the time. And like the uh, disciple said, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. He's saying, Lord, we believe in you, but we're just not really sure you're able to do this one thing, right? So again, that's belief in one thing and disbelief in another. But you can't, it's logically impossible to believe and disbelieve the same thing at the same time. So you know whether you believe the gospel, and then once you believe the gospel, um, you're saved. So good question. Great questions, actually. All right, well, let's call it and what do we do call me to close in prayer or do we want to any okay let me close this in prayer and then uh, we'll feel free to visit at the table and we can come back again tomorrow night father we do thank you for your word and thank you that it gives us the answers and lord help us to be good bereans and students of the word and we do thank you for this immeasurable matchless unbelievable good news the gospel that you've provided for us by grace and I thank you that indeed it is nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. And uh, where Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, died in our place and rose from the dead.
And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.